Technology offers permission to act in ways inconceivable without it. Yet somehow this hasn't quite led to a complete free-for-all. People still draw lines around what is acceptable and what is not. Writer Eden Collinsworth sets out to understand how and why. And in her new book, Behaving Badly, The New Morality in Politics, Sex, and Business, uh, she seeks out, among others, a prime minister, the editor of the Financial Times, a Holocaust survivor, a pop star, and a former commander of the U.S. Air Force, and grapples with the impracticality of applying morals to foreign policy, precisely when morality gets lost in making money, and what happens to morality without free will. We'll talk about this and more with Eden Collinsworth following the news.
Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. These days, our political leaders are less and less respectable. In the realm of business, cheating, lying, and stealing are hazily defined. And in daily life, rapidly changing technology offers permission to act in ways inconceivable without it. Yet somehow, this hasn't quite led to a complete free-for-all. People still draw lines around what is acceptable and what is not. And Eden Collinsworth has set out to understand how and why. In her new book, Behaving Badly, the New Morality in Politics, Sex, and Business, uh, she seeks out, among others, a prime minister, the editor of the Financial Times, a Holocaust survivor, a pop star, and a former commander of the U.S. Air Force, and grapples with the impracticality of applying morals to foreign policy, precisely when morality gets lost in the making of money, what happens to morality without free will, whether immoral women are just those having a better time, why celebrities have become the new moral standard bearers, and if testosterone is morality's enemy or its hero. And uh, we bring in now Eden's uh, Collinsworth, who is uh, in London. Welcome to the program. Well, thank you so much for having me. Appreciate uh, you being uh, with us. Uh, Eden Collinsworth is author of a memoir, I Stand Corrected, How Teaching Manners in China Became Its Own Unforgettable Lesson, author of a novel, It Might Have Been What uh, He Said, and of course now behaving uh, badly, a long career in uh, business, in uh, publishing, I guess mostly. Yes, I think that's about right, although I've had a kind of weirdly eclectic career. So I was a book publisher um, for 10 years, and then I started a magazine in Los Angeles, and um, then I worked uh, as a corporate executive uh, for Hearst, which is um, a multimedia company, and then in a, a really unexpected way, I was recruited to become the chief of staff of a global think tank, and about five years ago, I left that to move to China to write a book um, for Chinese about uh, Western business practices. And um, then I moved to London about three years ago and um, wrote um, about that adventure. And now this book, um, you know, was actually originally scheduled for the fall, but the publisher decided that it was um, timely um, given the set of circumstances. And so it was moved forward by five months. So I've 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 been writing at a breakneck speed at this point. Right. So, what was the actual year of writing for this this book? When did you start? Well, I started. Um, it was published in um, a, a few months ago, and um, I started writing it um, a little over a year ago. And 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 the the um, a story arc, so to speak, transpires during the course of that year. So, a great deal. Um, happened during that year. Um, there was a presidential race in um, 
America, you know, here in the UK, there was Brexit. Um, there were these remarkable advancements in technology by way of, um, of, of um, self-improving robots. There were any number of things that pointed to these kind of paradigm shifts. And, and so uh, the book covers uh, that period of the year, and yet it speaks on behalf of, I believe, of um, whether or not there, there is a future for morality. Yeah, very timely, and you know, if only if, if only for the presidential campaign, but many other things, as you say. Um, I'd like to. I'm going to quote a paragraph here, and then uh, have you maybe tell a story, and then loop back. Uh, you say these circumstances and their outcome. You're talking about being in China. Made me aware that though the Chinese wanted to learn how to do business with the West, Western values were beside the point. But there was more to it than that. Just as significant a realization at the time was that my personal values were becoming less and less relevant in my own country. So these circumstances, I wonder if you could uh, talk a little bit about this. Uh, you're you're um, publishing or trying to get approved your uh, your book, right, on, on Western etiquette, which became a bestseller yes, in China. Yes, yes. Well, it was a fascinating year for me. I had actually been in and out of China in these various my professional capacities over a period of, 30 years or so, but I, I, you know, unless you or until you live among the Chinese, you really are operating in a kind of Western bubble. And so it was the first time that it became apparent to me that my own value system was inapplicable in China. And that had largely to do with my perspective, which, you know, is of a kind of Judeo-Christian sense of fairness and right and wrong. Um, when I was confronting a, a very different philosophical um, position, which is, you know, Confucian-based, that there are many ways of being uh, right and very few ways of being wrong. And so from a business perspective, even something as simple as a contract, um, in the West it's considered to be kind of a memorializes a, an agreement that's been made, um, the terms have been negotiated, and in China often is the case where it's, thought of as the continuation of a dialogue. And, um, you know, I reminded myself that, um, you know, the Chinese are, if you look at its population, it, it it's one in every five people on the planet. So I, I definitely represented a minority <laughs> in terms mm. of, the, you know, a demographic uh, sector. And, and, and it prompted me to begin to consider whether or not my own values were... Um, Germaine in in America, um, I've as has is often the case um, in terms of my own generation. Um, I was brought up with a a set of values that were instilled in me by my parents, and so they're rather old guard, and there's not much um, you know flexibility to them. Um, and it seems it seemed apparent to me when I started to look into um, you know the, the moral landscape that. Uh, generations below me are far less rigid, and some part of that has to do with the fact that rather than values being instilled by parents, they are being shaped by these profound changes that have occurred, most especially in technology. Hmm. And so um, that prompted me to, to, to investigate further. And what I did was I made a point. I'm not an ethicist, and I'm not a social scientist. I don't profess to have any um, you know, background or, or, or um, you know, academic training. Um, but I was uh, curious, uh, you know, uh, so much so that I made a point of 
of trying to identify people who had made moral choices, uh, many uh, of which would, would have been different than my own. And I kind of sectioned the, the topic in, in three arenas. Um, fundamentally, one was a politics, one was business, and, and the last was sex, although so there's some overlap. And um, each chapter contains an interview, and it is often with somebody whose, whose story speaks in a very unusual way um, uh, in terms of the moral dilemma under the, under the um, headline of, of you know, that, that section. So, for example, um, in, under the section of, of sex, which is always very um, topical, um, I interviewed the, the founder of um, Ashley Madison. I think that they've changed their name since they've been hacked. But um, Noel Bitterman founded this website for married people who wish to have illicit affairs with other married people. And so with him, I spoke of um, the moral value of monogamy or whether, in fact, it's that's no longer um, you know, uh, important um, or as important as it was um, several generations ago, and um, so it was. It was a fascinating year. It was re- sometimes very sobering. Uh, other times, it was extremely encouraging. Um, but it was always a surprise. Yeah, you say that you uh, you. I guess you're you're trying to find the new landscape, right? And so you were mm. you started writing letters. That's one starting point to you uh, to people who have chosen to follow the moral status quo, fight to protect it, or act in outright defiance of it. Yes, and often one person got me to the next, or but I I was I, I made a concerted effort to. I mean, quite honestly, people's stories are sometimes more remarkable than anything you could possibly make up in fiction. Um, and uh, they're they're very telling, um, and so um, you know it was it was a, it, I thought it was a in, effective and impactful way of illustrating the points. Um, so, for example, um, you know in business, I, I spoke to a, a gentleman who was the CEO of a, you know possibly one of the most important Japanese companies Olympus and certainly one of the largest international companies and he was his company's own whistleblower in other words he discovered um a, a malfeasance that that had been literally passed from one CEO to the next um in terms of bookkeeping and and as long as it was kept um, quiet, it was never acknowledged on the books, and so the share price would, you know, maintain its value. And because he he brought it forward, first of all, he was fired by the board, but um, most of the point, he was considered in Japan to be, his actions were considered immoral, um, although he believed that he did the right thing, because the result of his disclosure um, plummeted the stock, and they had to um, fire, you know, hundreds of people. And uh, you know, the Japanese attitude, or, or, or uh, you know, the, the values they place on loyalty are extremely high. And he was disloyal and irresponsible, and and uh, to their mind, immoral. So that was an interesting. Uh, example of a different cultural perspective when you think you've done something right uh, and other people feel just as strongly as you've done something wrong. Hmm. 
I want to uh, I want to bring this in. It's just so interesting, uh, and then jump into definitions of morality and ethics. I'm not sure where this fits, but I I, I was just uh, fascinated. This is just this is an excerpt. I found this on your website, EdenCollinsworth.com, uh, from your uh, from your previous book. I stand corrected. Subtitle: How Teaching Western Manners in China Became Its Own Unforgettable Lesson. This was a dinner party, I think, a delegation of uh, some businessmen, Chinese businessmen, 1985. <laughs> And one of your guests asked um, how much you are, meaning you, how much to purchase you. Oh, that's right. Yes, that was right. That was a, I don't believe I've ever been asked that since, and it certainly was the first time. I said. Um, yes, I was, well, I was in my late 20s. I was a book publisher, and I um, was there, um, uh, you know, with colleagues, and um I think I can't remember where it was. It was not in Beijing, um, but I, I was sitting at a dinner, uh, which is often the case. That business is conducted over dinner, and the translator um, asked me um, or conveyed uh, the question by the gentleman I was taking to dinner, um, and that it was fundamentally what what was my price. And it wasn't for the evening, by the way. He he wanted to take permanent possession of me. So. <laughs> And, um, you know, I had a choice. I could be outraged or I could um, find a diplomatic way of responding, which and I did the latter, knowing that, in fact, I would I would want to continue to do business, not necessarily with him, but in China. (laughs) And um, so, you know, I think that um, there's something to be said about uh, diplomacy. Yeah, yeah, sir. <laughs> certainly. Um, you said one of the things that uh, precipitated this this book, this interesting journey, is you uh, realize that your personal values are becoming less and less relevant in your own country, meaning the uh, the, the the U.S. What maybe give me some examples of how how that clash was increasingly happening. Well, I you know these are all this is my personal perspective, but it was uh, you know it, the idea of. A, a definitive right and wrong has now moved into such a gray area. So um, in business, it's difficult to define what lying and cheating is. I mean, uh, it's not just um, it, it's not happening just in in the in America. Here in the UK, there have been you know hundreds of thousands of pounds paid out in fees, and no one's gone to jail in terms of bankers and traders. But, you know, it, 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 is, it has often been the case where um, a company will consider the fees and model them into their business plan um, and then decide whether there is a level of profitability. So it becomes not an ethical um, decision, but a financially driven one. Um, I think if you look at politics, certainly that has changed uh Profoundly, I, I think there is so much money involved. Um, and again, it, perhaps it's unfair to compare, but you know, I live now in the UK. Um, it, it's fascinating to see the differences um, here. It, it's simply ag- against the law to to make uh, contributions, um, uh, substantial contributions. Also, the duration of a campaign is you know, doesn't extend beyond three months. Um, what you're conveying are your policies. Uh, personalities don't necessarily come into play. And there's a level of civil discourse, um, although the papers can be kind of aggressively rude. Um, the fact is that there is, uh, you know, some dignity involved. It's very, very difficult to find um, civility and dignity um, in American politics, Um 
uh, that said, I've lived in countries where, uh, including China, where there's no free press. And as an American, I believe uh, fervently in uh, American ideals. Um, and so for me, it's, it's, it's sometimes difficult to see what is what has transpired, most especially since I've got a, a rather more, um, a, you know, varied uh, perspective. In other words, I've, I've lived outside of America now for the last 10 years. I come in and out. I still consider myself very much an American, but I, I, my sense is that it, for me at any rate, it, it's changed a great deal. You uh, you write that your mother uh, told you that civility clears the path toward morality. You uh, you I don't hold know that whether view? that's the case yeah. <laughs> anymore. I I think that that was. I mean, you know, if I uh, think of my father, he was a, quite a successful American businessman. He was also a Southerner, and um, not that you know uh, it matters. Although he he did have this kind of Faulknerian approach, and you know where you his 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 handshake was his bond. And the point is that that was that societal expectation was in place. So when you sh- shook hands, it was your word. That is no longer the case. Nobody expects your, your sh- you know, shaking hands become, uh, you know, a bond. Uh, in fact, people sign contracts and, and don't adhere to them. Uh, you know, there are, there are all sorts of examples now of, of how one operates in the margin of what's um, right and wrong. And so, um, you know, think, things have changed. I mean, and I, I, that, I don't think it's going to reverse itself. In other words, many people think that, you know, there's been a moral slide down. Um, I think things have changed. I don't, I think it's just a different morality. So, um, you know, generationally, uh, for example, if you consider Edward Snowden, people of my generation and older might consider his uh, acts immoral or, you know, wrong. And if you ask, um, people in generations below me, they are more often than not uh, think that he's been very brave, and in fact, he's a moral agent. So, you know, it's all relative. Yeah, uh, some would say, as you just alluded to, some would say that, it, that they see it as a as a long descent in morality, right? And the, they they would decry this. You're, you're you're observing it, I guess. You're, you just want to get the landscape. Is that where you are? I do, but it, I, it is slightly dispiriting. I mean, the, the really good news is that um, there is now, I think, pushback. So in America, um, certainly in the last year, uh, one I certainly felt as though it was, it was losing, uh, you know, the civility that was in place, because uh, quite honestly, that comes from the top and works its way down. So when you, you know, when you tell a lie, it's not only a choice of fact over fiction or fiction over fact, but it's also a moral choice, um, assuming you know it's a lie. Frankly, it's difficult to discern whether there is kind of sociopathical lying involved or, or whether it's, it's, it's simply trying to skirt or outwit the truth. But the point is that, you know, it's, it then becomes you know, as somebody who's a, a proponent of free press, as I would would guess most Americans are, um, the question becomes, you know, whose responsibility is it? Is it the responsibility of the press, of the free press, to call out a lie? Or does the press simply allow the public to come to their own 
conclusion. Um, and you know, the but the but the media has changed so profoundly. And again, this is a technological change. And so, you know, some seventy percent of Americans now receive their news um, through social media. And um, many times it's in a it's in a loop, and so you you are you know you're you're conversing um, uh, with like-minded people, and um, and so um, you know it's it's uh, not as much a objective um, perspective as as one would would want. Um, also, it's interesting. I mean, one of the people with whom I um, had a conversation in, in writing this book was this, you know, very uh, respected neuroscientist here in the UK who who specializes in the frontal lobes of the brain and how that has evolved. And the average time um, someone now is is spending on in front of a screen is nine hours, and that a day, and that that's happening at an earlier, earlier, an earlier, earlier age. And her point was that, you know, empathy is a skill. One isn't necessarily born empathetic. And that requires, you know, a, a kind of practice, so to speak. In other words, it requires interaction, real interaction with other people. We are, you know, primarily social beings who live uh, with each other. And by removing, um, a, you know, a personal interaction and reducing it to often a two-dimensional, um, you know, venue, um, you're, you're denying those skills um, the opportunity to develop. And that's why I think, um, you know, when you go online, if people disagree, they, they, it ratchets very quickly into something personal and angry. Um, and so, uh, again, that is technology is going to hurl ahead regardless of the arguments on other side of, of, of the issue. And I think that, um, you know, it's important to remind ourselves that there are these, these um, consequences. Let's take a break. When we come back more with Eden Collinsworth, who, who joins us from London, and her new book is Behaving Badly, The New Morality in Politics, Sex, and Business. When we come back, we'll uh, uh, jump into some of these fascinating stories uh, in the book, specific people that she uh, talked to. You're welcome to join the conversation at upraccess at gmail.com or 1-800-826-1495. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU Lyric Repertory Company's 50th anniversary season through August 5th, presenting the, Shake the complete works of William Shakespeare, Abridged and Revised, Big River, The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, Wait Until Dark, and The Foreigner. Details at lyricrep.org. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. We're talking with Eden Collinsworth. Her latest book is Behaving Badly, The New Morality in Politics, Sex, and Business. You're welcome to join the conversation at 800-826-1495, or you can join us by email to upraccess at uh, gmail.com. 
Uh, Eden Collinsworth uh, took a year and fascinating journey exploring the uh, new landscape for uh, morality. The result is uh, is this book. Uh, I'm wondering, just uh, looping back in Collinsworth to this idea of civility and uh, your mother's idea, which you don't uh, fully share anyway, that uh, civility clears the path toward morality. You, you made a choice to uh, to be in England, to be in London during the writing of this book. Why why is that? Mm-hmm. Uh, well, some of it was uh, practical. I knew that I'd be traveling. It, it, it's easier to, to get to places, uh, quite honestly, from London than it is from New York, which is where I've been based uh, when I've lived in the U.S. And um, some part was the fact that my son was going to university uh, here in the U.K., and I thought it would be uh, wonderful to, to be in the same country <laughs> at the same time. Um, and also, uh, frankly, it's a, it's slightly more human for me. Uh, and again, uh, you know, I, 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 it's difficult not to sound, uh, judgmental, but there is a civility in, in, um, in the UK. Obviously, I'm, I'm making sweeping generalizations, and I would like to believe what my mother had, uh, you know, tried to convey to me repeatedly, uh, which is that civility clears, clears the path to, to morality. Um, it, it's, you know, London especially has, it's, it's a hugely international city. It, it has its own challenges. Um, but I think that their instincts are, are absolutely pointed in the right direction. And, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the, the last six months especially have been really quite daunting uh, here in London where there have been um, terrorist attacks one after the other. And um, the one that occurred on Westminster Bridge um, happened. I mean, it, it took all of less than two minutes to transpire um, and, you know, it, it, it happened just before uh, rush hour. And by the time rush hour had begun, which was it just typically about 530, um, the Arts Fund had um, put up signs in all the major uh, metro uh, you know, um, stations, um, one of which is Canary Wharf, and so th- it was a very simple sign that you couldn't help but notice. You, there was no way you could ignore it, either coming or going, and um, it was very simple. And it read, uh, "Not them, only us." Hmm. Yeah, that's 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 fairly profound, isn't it? It is, yeah. and I must tell you that. You know, the several months before, I, I was in New York, and I had an early morning meeting with my publisher, and so I was on the, you know, Lexington Avenue subway hurling uptown, and as is often the case, you know, at, at the big cross, you know, um, streets of 42nd Street especially, you know, there's a big crowd that kind of pushes in and, you know, courses through the, the, um, the, the, uh, the trains. And um, I, I had gotten on early uh, downtown, so I had a seat. So all I really saw were legs, frankly. But someone inadvertently pushed another person, and it very, very quickly turned confrontational and racial. Um, and the one man said to the other, go back to Africa. And I must say that, you know, listen, you know, I've lived in New York many, many years off and on. And, you know, it's a city where people are very much in your face. Uh, That said, you know, even if you thought that, you would never say that 
you you would never speak that out loud um and and so um you know what what has allowed that to happen is that um it's basically come from the white house <laughs> i mean I, I i'm sorry but there's just been a a, a certain uh you know cascading down of of you know it's it's been it's given permission um for people to to say things that are uh, often mean uh you know uh, you know racial um you know bigoted and um and i think that's that is what has changed and that's very uh disappointing um but i i think now perhaps there's a little bit of pushback but uh, you know uh, the what happened very quickly was of course somebody else spoke up and they you know in the in the train and and then it escalated to something really nasty but you know i in all the years i've i've um been you know taken subways and public transportations in new york i i'd never really uh, you know been exposed to that and 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 frankly it, it's happening more and more elsewhere which is why um the the arts fund put the sign up as quickly as it did i thought that was completely brilliant full of imagination and by the way the um equivalent to the arts fund is the national endowment for the arts in america which i gather is you know been threatened to have its budget cut severely so um you yeah. know there's that yeah in in the at least in the in the president's budget we'll see how that fares in in congress that's true yeah um i i think what what a lot of people have been noticing is put in bold relief with uh, with the new administration and and the, the bruising campaign last year um is that the, the norms matter a lot what we call democracy there's you know the rules and laws but norms the way we all agree to behave that's those have been under attack and and those are very important they are, and I, I, as I say, I, 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 the solace that I take is that there seems to be, I, I think people are holding the line, so to speak. In other words, they've recognized what line not to cross, and they're holding that. I must say that, uh, you know, I am the first to admit that I have lived in an extremely global world, uh, and I've taken advantage of all of the benefits. My son has as well. He's in his late 20s. He speaks several languages, and he goes where he, his opportunities are in terms of uh, career and jobs and so on and so forth. I have not paid attention, uh, not deliberately, but I, I've not paid attention to the large number of people in America, especially, who have, in fact, um, been victimized, so to speak, by uh, globalization. And I think that's Probably what weighed in during, you know, uh, uh, during the campaign. That's what was addressed and taken advantage of. I feel, and and that is what has voted uh, Donald Trump in into the White House. Um, because at the end of the day, you know, people are not particularly interested in the subtleties of morality uh, more than they are in uh, how to support themselves and their family, and the. Um, I think that uh, at the risk of sounding cynical, I think it's just worldly to accept the fact that if Donald Trump fails, it will be because his policies have, have failed and because he, the promises he, he, he won't be able to deliver on the promises, not because he's an immoral person, which, by the way, I, I personally believe he is. Hmm. Uh, and it's uh, I've seen a lot of writing this. It's, it's my belief as well that... Uh, 
Mr. Trump connected even more than economically, he connected culturally with uh, with, with, the, with these right. base. I think you're absolutely right. I think what was initially uh, an economic uh, divide very uh, quickly became uh, a cultural divide. Or uh, and and you know, I think that people are now more willing to believe something is true, not because it's necessarily true, uh, but because the other side believes that it's false. And and that's not, you know, nobody wants that, but mm. that's where we are right now. And I'm hoping we can find our way out of that. So, you know, culture is composed of values, certainly, probably also morals and ethics. And if there's, so there seems to be a divide. We seem to be very divided in America. In that, that culture well, divide. I think, I think you're right. I, I mean, what I think it's important, perhaps uh, I should have done this earlier, but just to to define the word moral uh, morality and and the other word ethics, which you know both come into play, but often they're thought of as one and the same, and they're not. So um, morals are what we believe as individuals. Um, it's what we expect of ourselves. They're personal beliefs and ethics are, you know, the kind of rules or the, the, and the sanctions, the expectations that a society brings. And often the two are in conflict. So, for example, um, I might not believe in abortion, but the law um, allows abortion to take place, um, perhaps less and less so. But the fact is that, uh, I mean, to, to cite a, 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 another example, I, I, as if I were a lawyer, um, I would have to represent my client to the best of my ability, regardless of whether or not I believed um, he or she acted immorally, because ethically that is what is required of me. So um, there, there are two separate things. I think what's uh, rather baffling these days or confusing is that never have we been so interconnected. And yet what we are beginning to realize is that our, um, our own moral values are, can be extremely different. Hmm. And the, the, there are a lot of implications there. Um, we're, we're increasingly interconnected, but more, moral values different. So how, how do we navigate that? Well, I think that we have to find our way out of what is currently an extremely polarized climate. I mean, no other country but America has evolved so many different ways for for its people to remain individuals. But it's also true that we are really, you know, we are extremely polarized. And um, the, the fact is that regardless of what politicians have promised us, very little will prevent the churn of humanity. I know you cannot think that somehow, you know, throwing up a wall or, you know, initiating a band is going to somehow stop the flow of people. Um, the globalization has shrunk a physical distance, but the same can't be said about the cultural differences. And, you know, the question I think that we are facing is, in America and elsewhere, is do we force cultural and moral integration in order for everyone to become more like us. In other words, in America, you know, individuals, uh, the, uh, the idea of being an individual is of utmost importance. It's, it's, it's the cornerstone of, of, of our belief system. And yet um, now you see more and more that, um, you know, that has failed institutionally. And so you see, uh, for example, in California, 
um, you know, you 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 could be a Christian Science certainly in in California, but it, but if you have a, your child in school, um, a public school at any rate, they it is now a law they have to be inoculated. Um, and so, uh, you know, there are other examples, um, you know, the, the Confederate flag, no matter how, what you feel about it, has to come down. So, um, I, I, you know, it's an interesting um, juncture in terms of how America will handle itself going forward. I think the only solution is, I'm hoping, is a, the creation of a popular movement in the middle and I've, I'm encouraged to see what's happened in France. You know, here is President Macron, who came out of nowhere in the last year, has been successful in creating a parliament, 50% of which, more than 50%, I have, don't have any experience in politics. So they're very accomplished individuals. Um, and so, you know, we'll see how he governs and whether or not he can actually implement his policies. But I think his instincts are right, which is you build your base in the middle because the fringe, um, it, it just is not going to, it, it, all it does is become more and more destructive, you know, if you've got such a polarized um, set of circumstances and, and environment. It'll be interesting to see uh, Mr. Trump's heading to Paris, right? See Mr. Trump and Mr. Macron side by side. These are two... Um quote-unquote outsiders, Mr. Trump a little more politically. But uh, as you just yes, mentioned, yeah. uh, Macron's movement, he recruited a bunch of outsiders uh, who are now in, in Parliament. And uh, Mr. Trump, is that's that, that was his whole deal, right? He's an outsider, and he brought in some outsiders. But, yeah. but different well, I flavors. I mean, if you look at the outsiders he's brought in, they are absolutely, um, well, I should say absolutely, they are for the most part coming from the same sector. They, these are fundamentally, you know, business people. And um, so it, 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 he doesn't have the range that Macron has deliberately chosen. Um, and, and I think, frankly, that's one of the reasons why the issues of conflict of interest are so prevalent. I mean, if you look, look at what's transpired, it really is um, kind of staggering, frankly. Um, but there doesn't seem to be any shame. And so that, that also is the hallmark of... <laughs> Of morality that seems to be sloughed off, or so, you know, the, the the kind of utter shamelessness of mm. of uh, franchising a brand, uh, you know, and having no problem that it's somehow connected um, with the White House, which mm. should be above reproach. Maybe a better analog to uh, Macron's movement we'll see in 2018. I'm I'm guessing that Democrats will be recruiting a bunch of outsiders, veterans, etc., um, to to run for Congress. Um, yeah. I wonder that word shame. Shame is, uh, you know, is sort of the enforcer of of morality, right? And we seem to be well, moving to shamelessness. Well, it used to be. Yeah, it used to be. No, it, it used, used to, to be. be. It's interesting yeah. with this um, this terrible, terrible tragedy and and just a disaster um, that occurred here in London uh, several weeks ago, where this, um, you know, this the the, the uh, apartment building has you know went up in flames so quickly. And and you know inexcusable um, you know things that uh, that transpired that should not have. Um, it was fascinating to see as an American that literally within 24 hours there was the admission of shame that this that the um, prime minister uh, there were other people 
who who admitted to the fact that this was shameful. And it's a word, frankly, that you rarely hear anymore in in America. And you write uh, that uh, perhaps the it's large institutions and really big sins, quote unquote, that uh, would produce, you know, VW, for example, and and perhaps yeah, the, the big yeah. banks. So I think, yeah, that also. Well, I mean, it, this is the thing. If you look at, if you take the um, automobile industry and you look at the complete, you know, you just kind of brazen, you know, um, advancement, you know, at the at the risk and, and the cost of, um, you know, the, the health of. Uh, of consumers, uh, where they deliberately rigged the admissions, you know, um, reporting system. Um, it, 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 if you look at it culturally, it's just across the board. I mean, it's not only the Germans, but the, you know, the the, the Japanese, the Americans. <laughs> and uh, unfortunately, everybody was doing it. So the, I, I suppose, greed, which is one of the seven deadly sins, by the way, it it, it just it's not a cultural divide. I, I think it is simply a human. It's human behavior, and I, uh, alas, I feel most especially around money, greed will always um, bubble right up to the surface. And I'm a great believer in, in uh, certainly in the financial sector at any rate, um, or or bu- the business sector, is that you know people should be going to jail. That's the only thing that frankly acts as a preventative. Um, um, so I, I have a rather um, strident um, opinion of how that might be addressed. Let's uh, take another break. When we come back, we have an email from Steve, and I want to talk about some specific chapters. The book is Behaving Badly, The New Morality in Politics, Sex, and Business. The author is Eden Collinsworth, who is joining us from London. More following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the Cache Valley Visitors Bureau. Presenting the Cache Valley Foodie Trek and Live Theater opportunities, more information is available online at explorelogan.com. The Cache Valley Visitors Bureau showcases outdoor access to the National Forest for hiking, fishing, and camping. Information on trails, campsites, and more is available online at explorelogan.com. This is Brian Erickson and Bringing More to Life. For the first time, adult couples have more parents than children. How do you prepare for this new role? Communication is key to success in any job. No one likes to feel they are losing control. Begin with your parents' wishes. Talk to them about personal goals, housing, legal, financial, and medical decisions. Some of these conversations may be easy. Some will be difficult. Start the conversation now to bring more to their lives. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. You're listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and I'm talking with Eden Collinsworth, author most recently of Behaving Badly, The New Morality in Politics, Sex, and uh, Business. Uh, she spent a year um, exploring the new uh, landscape of uh, morality, and the result is a very interesting book. 
She's joining us from London. You can join us here as well. 800-826-1495 is the toll-free number. Or our email is upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. And Steve has um, joined us by email. He says it's true that technology is changing the American media landscape, uh, but corporate economic and ideological self-interest are also at work because antitrust regulations are no longer enforced. There are only a handful of companies that control American airwaves, and they serve their own interests, both financial and ideological. Financially, it is much cheaper to serve up infotainment than to maintain news bureaus and staffs of competent reporters at home and abroad. Also, stories and perspectives that don't fit the ideological interests of these companies get uh, don't get covered, and consequently, many Americans never learn of them. That's uh, that's Steve. What, what do you think, Eden Collinsworth? Um, I think he's completely correct on on all points. Um, but this is legislation, and so um, the current administration is relaxing. Um, you know, legislation that has to do with uh, regulation, um, and so uh, you know, th- this uh, these this decision-making process occurs um, with each administration, and it's um, uh, if you look at the people advising uh, the president, they are uh, businessmen. So um, I'm not surprised, frankly, that. Um, you know that they're uh, what they're advising and the counsel they're giving is um, is uh, self-fulfilling. Um, you know, it, it's also important, I think, to to understand that the the internet. I mean, most of us think of the internet as this kind of amorphous, atmospheric, um, you know, opportunity to to communicate, to uh, to research, to um, establish, uh, you know communities. Um, but it, the fact is that it is a uh, profit-making, uh, publicly-owned corporation. And there are, um, you know, several tech companies uh, which have, which really are, uh, you know, have a, a major stake in in the Internet, whether it's social media or... And, and, and these are these are companies. These are not, this is not, um, you know, these are not foundations. Their first priority is a return on investment. And, um, and so, you know, if you listen to Mark Zuckerberg, who's written a manifesto for the future of mankind, outlining how Facebook can become a worldwide ideological movement, um, I think the question that we w- I would probably ask him is how does he propose to lead a global community when he makes his money or his, the company makes its money from capturing people's attention and then selling it to advertisers? So uh, you know I think it's very very important to to remind oneself that um, you know so much of our lives online are are um, dictated by a a profit center, frankly, and I'm not saying this in a conspiratorial sense, but I, I think it's important to to, to note that um, you know there are vested interests across the board. Mm. You write that um, politicians. We used to demand respectability out of our politicians, not so much anymore. Uh, used to be a bigger price to pay for celebrities if if they weren't respectable to at least a certain degree. Not so much anymore. In fact, you know the old adage, "There's no such thing as bad publicity," seems more and more true. And yet, in some cases, celebrities have become, as you write, the new moral standard bearers. 
How, how does yeah, that happen? Yeah, it's odd. It's really odd. And, and I, you know, I'm, I'm the first to admit I'm, I'm not, you know, of that generation. But the Kardashians, for example, are so completely beyond me. But again, uh, let's remind ourselves that they are, they have created an enormous profit center. I mean, they've been incredibly shrewd in terms of franchising their brand. So everything that they have to offer, whether it's, you know, a, you know, a, a, a newsletter, whether they're actually books, whether it's a television program, whether it's, you know, anything on social media, it's, it's generating, uh, it's making them extremely rich. Um, and, you know, what I found fascinating, and again, this is, it, it baffles me, but it is nonetheless the case. Um, one of the people um, I interviewed for this book is a, a woman by the name of Allison Jackson, who you, you, one might not recognize her name, but one would probably recognize her work because she takes photographs, you know, of, of what we assume are celebrities, but we realize, in fact, are lookalike celebrities. And then she puts them in, you know, unusual or, or humorous, um, you know, settings. Um, so, um, you know, for example, the queen is in a bathtub or something here, or, you know, uh, Donald Trump is, you know, on the golf course, which I suppose isn't really a send up anymore. But, but, um, the point that I'm, I'm making is that she told me that in, in, uh, Japan, and because this is really, this is why it, celebrity isn't, Western celebrity is not necessarily indigenous only to America. But in Japan, um, she was setting up a photo shoot, and it was in a mall. Um, and so she had uh, lookalikes of um, Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt. This is when they were still married. And, and everyone knew they were not the real thing. And yet the, there was an enormous crowd. People wanted, you know, pictures. People, she said that often is the case where young girls, you know, throw themselves make themselves sexually available to look-alike celebrity male celebrities. And, and so, you know, the, the lure of celebrity in the West, at any rate, is really a, is, is something that has transpired over the last 10, 15 years, and it really is um, quite, it has a force of its own. We just have a couple minutes left. A uh, good time to look to the future. What, uh, where, where is uh, the, the landscape, moral, more morality landscape going in the future? Well, I mean, if you look at the future and you look at self-correcting robots and, you know, there's somebody I, I spoke to at great length, you know, Wendell Wallach has been lobbying to introduce, you know, programming uh, to, to, you know, opportunities to program morality in robots. And it sounds you know, rather far-fetched, but in fact, I think it is not incorrect to consider the fact that, you know, robots now will will assume a more important role as we move forward. And so whose morality, are, you know, will they adhere to? And, and again, what will happen is that it just depends upon the culture. So the Chinese will program a certain mindset in their robots and Americans will do perhaps something different. Um, you know, it's a complicated venue. Uh, but I, I suppose if I had a sign off, it's this that, you know, we, we will, we will continue to be operating as, as, as human beings 
uh, in a more and more globalized world. And I think it's imperative to take our eyes off the mirror in front of us and look around and realize that we don't necessarily, we will not necessarily share our moral sense with others. And so that will force us to um, choose which to defend and which to relinquish um, in order to move forward. Um, And that requires a dialogue and an open-mindedness. Well, we'll uh, leave it there. Out of time, uh, Behaving Badly, The New Morality in Politics, Sex, and Business. The author is Eden Collinsworth. She has joined us from London, and uh, her website is EdenCollinsworth.com. Thanks so much. Thank you for having me. It was very interesting. And uh, coming up tomorrow, we have a program by listener request. Had a uh, a email from Alec who says uh, uh, that they want to hear more um, uh, science. I want to hear about dinosaurs, and so we're going to have a program on dinosaurs, especially those in Utah, and uh, we'll talk uh, with uh, some guests, including our state paleontologist, Jim Kirkland. That's tomorrow. Hope you'll join us. Thanks for listening today. Utah Public Radio is a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard at upr.org. time on Living on Earth, dangerous radioactive waste is piling up at U.S. nuclear plants. This storage at the reactor sites was envisioned to last for only a few decades. That's certainly not an acceptable long-term solution. But Finland says it's found a permanent solution. I'm Steve Kerwood, and that's next time on Living on Earth from PRI. Join us this morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio.